Hey, welcome to the Pittsburgh City Paper Podcast. My guest today is Patrick Nightingale. He's the executive director of Pittsburgh Normal. I'm also joined by uh, City Paper editor Charlie Deach. Patrick, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you very much for welcoming uh, me to the studio, and I look forward to our conversation. Cool. Uh, so let's just start with a, kind of like a basic uh, state of things for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What is uh, the status of marijuana for Pittsburgh as of today? Uh, we have passed a local decriminalization ordinance in the city of Pittsburgh that permits city officers to write a essentially a ticket for possession of 30 grams or less of marijuana and to treat that as a summary level offense. Um, in Pennsylvania, possession of any amount of marijuana is a misdemeanor, and Pennsylvania law defines possession of 30 grams or less as, quote, possession of a small amount. So what we have done is we approached the chief, we approached the district attorney, the mayor, city council, and said, you know, can we pass a local ordinance similar to what they did in Philadelphia to give our police officers the option of citing under our local law as opposed to uh, issuing a summons or an arrest for a misdemeanor level violation. Mm. This means that uh, Pittsburghers or anyone charged with a marijuana offense under our ordinance is not subject to fingerprinting. They do not have to go to a preliminary hearing, and they're not facing a possible misdemeanor level conviction. Mm. Uh, that is, we've done that in Pittsburgh. That's in Philadelphia. It's also in Harrisburg and State College, uh, but it is not statewide, and it is something that uh, uh, activists are beginning to discuss with legislators, you know, approaching this on a statewide level instead of, you know, you know piecemeal city by city. And I believe that there is some support for that uh, in the legislature. It's just what will a potential statewide decriminalization bill look like. Mm. Uh, at present, we have seen uh, bills that call for mandatory $500 fines for a small amount of marijuana. Uh, locally, uh, Representative Ed Ganey uh, introduced a bill that I helped uh, to draft that would essentially mirror what we're doing in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh by making it a maximum $100 fine. So there's a lot to talk about uh, in Harrisburg, but I think that there is, for the first time, some real momentum uh, for reform beyond uh, just the medical bill that we had passed. Patrick, you're also uh, a defense attorney. Have you seen the number of cases decline, uh, the number of, of marijuana-related cases Serious marijuana cases decline in, in the city since the decriminalization? Well, serious marijuana cases do not apply to the decriminalization. Sure. So if someone's caught with plants, if someone has a quarter pound, yeah. uh, or if someone is engaged in narcotics distribution, you know, a controlled buy or something like that, mm -hmm. those things would fall outside of our decriminalization ordinance. But since we passed decriminalization, I've been in informally asking, you know, city police officers when I'm in court, and they look at me as if, you know, why are you even asking me this? We don't waste our time with small amounts anymore. Right. So I haven't seen specific numbers mm -hmm. uh, to compare or contrast with last year at this time, but I believe that quietly city officers are exercising their discretion and not uh, issuing misdemeanor level uh, uh, summons or arrests uh, when they come across people with small amounts. Hmm. So on a larger scale, uh, you know, the changes that have gone, that, that have happened in America with our perception of marijuana and the changes of decriminalization in cities – Obviously, there's a number of factors that go into that change. What do you think is the number one factor? Um, and it, that's a difficult question to answer, but I think that you know the 
evolving perception of cannabis use, the evolving uh, uh, attitude about cannabis prohibition really started when California passed uh, medicinal marijuana in 1996 and for the first time uh, was able to challenge this reefer madness mentality that marijuana is schedule one, it's going to you know kill your brain cells, it's going to cause lung cancer, your children are going to be jumping out of you know skyscrapers, whatever the, uh, the nonsense was, and we slowly started to be able to change that as more states passed medicinal laws. That primarily started in the West where they have ballot initiatives and you didn't have to go through a, a legislative body like we do in Pennsylvania right. or like we do federally. Mm. Uh, so Western states, such as California, such as Colorado, such as Oregon, were able to you know, go directly to the citizens and put something in front of uh, uh, the voters and pass that type of reform. Uh, and it's been, I think, a steady, very steady process, uh, especially since 2010. Uh, we've got more and more states with medicinal, more and more states with decriminalization, and four states with full legalization and the District of Columbia. So, you know, I think that it's been a totality of, you know, the reform efforts on local levels across the nation that finally has a lot of people, my generation and older, yeah. you know, I'm 46. So, you know, those of us who grew up in just say no and, you know, right. this is your brain on drugs and all that garbage, you know, we are finally coming to understand that what we've been told is complete bunk. Yeah. And yeah. I think for millennials or for anyone under 30, they simply grew up in a world where they knew that this uh, propaganda was just that propaganda. Yeah, it almost seems like a, like it's like a guinea pig thing. Like if you see that it works in one place, then it gives you it gives states or whatever like this domino effect. Is that uh, absolutely? Yeah. I, I think that the more evidence, anecdotal evidence, hard evidence, scientific evidence, medical evidence that we are able to generate in legal states, you know, makes it that much uh, easier for us to make an argument. Hey, look what they did in Colorado. Their tax revenue is up, uh, their violent crime is down, uh, and this doesn't seem to be having a overall negative effect. Mm. And that's the type of thing that our legislators in Pennsylvania are going to want to hear before they're willing to stick their neck out to their constituents and say, we support uh, reform. Yeah. The, uh, the, the medicinal law in Pennsylvania, as we've talked about before, never would have gotten through without Republicans and Democrats getting together. Do you think that, that Republicans um, – the Republicans who sort of kind of took control of this uh, along with Dale, Democrat Dalen Leach and, and sort of really took this through the House, do you think that they would ever favor full legalization – I think that the case can be made to uh, some of our conservative legislators here in Pennsylvania that full legalization not only is the right thing to do, it's a responsible thing to do. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we spend anywhere between $200 million and $350 million on cannabis-related prosecution, courts, wow. law enforcement, and corrections. Um, Colorado has generated over $140 million in uh, – in tax revenue from recreational and medicinal sales, but primarily from recreational sales. We have three times the population of Colorado. It's easy to do the math and to conservatively estimate that we could realize a half billion dollar shift in expenditures and new revenue coming into the mm. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for a state that has a $2 billion hole in its budget. It just does not seem to make any 
fiscal sense right, whatsoever right. to ignore this potential tax revenue simply because we are clinging to outdated and antiquated attitudes about cannabis. Right. You know, as, as I said before, we did not legalize gambling in Pennsylvania right. because we want people to gamble. We legalized gambling in Pennsylvania because we recognized that they were going to do it anyway yeah. and that that revenue was going to New Jersey, it was going to West Virginia. Why not keep that revenue right. in Pennsylvania? So what are the entities that lose with these sort of uh – you know, loosening of the laws or decriminalization or legalization? Who loses? I honestly don't think anybody loses. Um, a lot of people say, well, you know, Big Pharma opposes this, law enforcement opposes this, the prisons oppose this. Uh, we've got plenty for law enforcement to do. We are awash in a heroin epidemic and a prescription pill epidemic right now. Uh, uh, Internet child sexual predation is at its all-time high, and there just seems to be no way to effectively uh, address that because of a lack of law enforcement resources. We have so much for our law enforcement to concentrate on. We have violent homicide uh, or violent crime rates that need to go up. You know, why are we clearing homicides at 50, 60 percent? We should have a 100 percent clearance right. rate on homicides. We should not be using five undercover officers to do a controlled buy of a quarter ounce of marijuana, as happened to my client a couple of weeks ago. Really? Can you talk more about that? Uh, the case is pending, okay. but, you know, there, is, there are still uh, some agencies operating here within Allegheny County who will utilize controlled buys, who will utilize uh, undercover officers, who will utilize uh, confidential informants to make purchases of a small amount of marijuana with the attitude of like, hey, I'll catch this kid with a, a felony on a small amount of marijuana and then I'll talk him into doing heroin buys for me. And I think that that is just, it, it, it's ridiculous, number one. And if you are truly only, you know, someone who engages in cannabis consumption, what do you know about heroin buys? Right. Uh, so I think that, you know, looking around, you know, what's going on right now, it is just, it is unethical and it is irresponsible to continue to saddle Pennsylvanians with misdemeanor and felony level convictions for a 100% natural, non-toxic plant. Hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in this work? Uh, what, what made you want to work on behalf of this topic? Well, uh, I have been a lifelong cannabis consumer. Um, I first addressed the issue of cannabis reform in uh, the youth and government program uh, when I was a senior in high school uh, in 1987. And that necessarily didn't go over too terribly well. Mm, sure. But that was the first time that I reached out and learned that there was an organization called the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And they sent me information back in 1987 that literally, you know, was, was like, you know, picking up Jack Herrera's, you know, the emperor has no clothes mm. book. It's like, right. really? The government's doing tests and they know that it doesn't kill brain cells? Mm. Really? The government has a program where they give marijuana to a, a select number of, of patients here in the United States, and yet they still call it Schedule 1? Now, that was a long, long time ago, and, and in the intervening period of time, uh, I went to law school and I became a prosecutor. Mm. Uh, I never prosecuted marijuana cases. I, I, I stayed uh, outside of that realm because I knew it would be a potential conflict of interest for me. But even so, no one was aware uh, what I did recreationally. Fast forward into, uh, to 2009. I've been a private defense attorney for a number of years at that point, and I hear on the radio that Mark Cohen from Philadelphia had introduced a medical marijuana bill. 
uh, I almost wrecked. But I, I pulled over and I got on the phone and in short order started talking to some of the folks at uh, Philadelphia Normal. And I decided to get involved at that uh, time. And quite frankly, my attitude was I thought that marijuana reform needed a bit of a professional makeover. Sure. We didn't need you know more uh, Bob Marley songs playing. <laughs> we didn't necessarily need someone in a tie-dye you know, going out and making this. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Cannabis culture is, you know, in a, has been a great culture that we have been able to, you know, thrive in despite prohibition. Yeah. But when the issue is convincing, you know, conservative legislators, when the issue is convincing law enforcement, when the issue is taking it to prosecutors, I thought that my role as a former prosecutor and a practicing criminal defense attorney would give me the ability to make the case before just being, you know, summarily dismissed as someone who just wants to go out to, you know, Flagstaff Hill and throw a Frisbee. (laughs) (laughs) That said, I did not anticipate that we would still be talking about this in 2016, having just passed a bill. Hmm. I did not realize uh, what a long and arduous process this was going to be to try to get marijuana reform through a legislature uh, with Republican majorities in the House and the Senate. And at the time, Tom Corbett um, took over in 2011. And quite frankly, before uh, Mike Fulmer reached out and joined with Dalen Leach, there was nothing going on right. because the Republicans uh, in the House and the Senate were not going to uh, consider a bill sponsored by one of the most liberal members of the Senate right. without uh, Republican co-sponsors. Hmm. So I reached out to you uh, to discuss uh, the, the issue of marijuana use in the NFL. Uh, and I, in doing some of that research, I was looking at the uh, Canadian Football League, uh, where a lot of players who actually get in trouble in the United States actually go to play there. And I found out that they have absolutely no testing for recreational drugs. And then you look around the world and it seems like that seems to be the theme. Why, why, does, why do you think the United States has such a unique relationship to this particular drug? It, we, always, we always have. You know, like, let's go back to, uh, to Nixon and uh, the dawn of the war on drugs. Uh, President Nixon was un- unsure whether marijuana should be scheduled one, two, three, four, or five. So he asked uh, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer, former Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer, a Republican, mm-hmm. to commission uh, a study relative to the actual uh, potential harm of marijuana. Uh, while that study was, uh, uh, was being conducted, marijuana was temporarily placed in Schedule 1. Uh, Governor Schaefer came back to President Nixon and said, I recommend um, not regulating, not criminalizing small amounts of marijuana and treating it in a manner similar to alcohol. That fell on deaf ears, and it's been Schedule One ever since. Mm. So, you know, we have been looking at marijuana as this very dangerous drug that is categorized the same as heroin, the same as uh, uh, hallucinogenics. Yeah. You know, the worst of the worst. And if you grow up, and that is all you're told is that this is a, a Schedule One drug. It's a gateway drug. You might as well be doing heroin. Then that tends to, you know, become pervasive yeah. in our society. Um, and I think that that. You know, reflects itself in a lot of the anti-drug policies. A lot of employers uh, will have, um, you know, drug-free requirements because they have federal and state contracts. Uh, With the National Football League, they are obviously very, very, very image concerned. And this is something that worked its way into the collective bargaining agreement, despite the fact that consuming marijuana cannot in any way, you know, I would submit be considered a performance-enhancing drug (laughs) in a manner similar to steroids or, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I was thinking, you know, when, you, when you're talking about Frisbee and tie-dye and Bob Marley, it almost seems like some, in some ways uh, the cultural image is, is um, maybe inhibited, uh, you know, the, the growth of the perception of marijuana in the United States. You know, it, it, it has inhibited it, but it also has encouraged it because, mm. you know, we do have a cannabis culture that exists. You know, there are, you know, cannabis consumers in legal states and in illegal states. And for a long time, you know, the only, you know, real, you know, binding factor was to be able to see a Cheech and Chong movie, for example, or, mm. you, know, you know, a Grateful Dead show. And then maybe later with some of the hip hop artists, you know, Snoop Dogg and some others, you know, embracing that cannabis culture a little bit more. And what it did, I think, uh, it effectively brought us together as a community. And quite literally right now, I've, and I've said it time and time again, for the first time, cannabis consumers here in Pennsylvania have a real political voice. People listen to us. that We're not just laughed at uh, and, and summarily dismissed. And, you know, cannabis culture, though, you know, there are some, you know, negative stereotypes associated with it, it's cannabis culture that enabled us to all come together in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, before, you know, without uh, Tommy Chong, without Cheech Marin, without Snoop, without uh, Willie Nelson, we don't have a community that brings us together. And this cannabis community is, you know, anywhere from you know, people who are retired to young hip hop artists to jazz artists to you know teachers, lawyers. We are a community that is cross cultural. Uh, we come from all ages, all ethnic backgrounds. Uh, we're we're men and women, and having that community to bring us together uh, enabled us to finally you know leverage our political power and have a mm-hmm. real voice. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, as a journalist, uh, you know, yeah. writing about, I assume you've written about it in some fashion. A few times, yeah. yeah. Are you surprised by the progress that's happened in Pennsylvania, that's happened in Pittsburgh? Um, I think I think at some point, uh, I think maybe when the first um, – when we first started talking seriously of, like two or three years ago about – when it looked like the medical marijuana, uh, uh, medical cannabis laws were going to pass. I think at that point I sort of noticed – and honestly it was when um, – it's, 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 when, it's when the Republicans got involved. You, you really saw – a shift in that whole thing. And I was, right. I sat in a small church in Cranberry. I think Patrick was there and, um, uh, you know, and it was just kind of one story after another of, of, you know, this was, you know, these were sick kids, you know, these weren't, you know, these weren't your typical right. Cheech and Chong sort right. of, I mean, these were, these were desperate parents and really sick kids who just, you know, who needed help. And, and I think at some point, and that's why I think I, I, I've done, look, I did, I've done plenty of, uh, I've done plenty of shaming in my column, uh, of uh, of uh, of our of our speaker Mike Terzai, uh, who was one of the biggest obstacles to this bill. Yeah. Um, at some point, I think the the image started to flip. You were no longer trying to keep some stoner kid from getting medical from getting marijuana. You were keeping you know a kid who had you know a hundred seizures a day right. from getting useful medicine. And at that point. I think it flipped the script a little bit, and I think it will continue to flip. I think to to because you know there's a list of what you of the conditions you can use medical marijuana for. Right. But it would be it would be helpful in a whole lot of other situations that are that are a lot less safer, or that are a lot. It's a lot more safe than you know taking Vicodin or or Oxy or something right, like yeah. that. It's wait. So going back, you mentioned Schedule One. We always hear that term. What is like a Schedule Two? <laughs> 
Uh, Schedule two means that a uh, a substance, uh, though potentially dangerous, though potentially addictive, has a medical benefit to Mm. it. Um, I remember being on the air with Mike Pintak uh, a couple of years ago and telling him that cocaine is Schedule two, and I could hear you know it was a remote interview, but (laughs) I could literally hear him falling out of his seat. He's like, "Are you telling me that cocaine is Schedule two? And I said, "Yes, it is Schedule two because it has been used to uh, to numb air passages and for intubation. Mm. Uh, So it therefore has a medical purpose, even though it is." a highly uh, addictive and otherwise potentially dangerous drug. Same with Oxycontin, uh, fentanyl, uh, Vicodin, Percocet. These are are medications that do have a legitimate medical purpose in pain relief. However, they also have potentially serious side effects that include addiction and uh, can harm your liver and so on and so forth. for marijuana to be classified as Schedule One means that it has no uh, medical value whatsoever and a high potential for abuse and cannot be uh, administered in a medical fashion. We have 26 medical marijuana states in the United States of America. In, in the United, in the United States, <laughs> marijuana, <America>. yeah. <laughs> we have 26 medical marijuana states. The United States government still. Get, uh, sends nine ounces of marijuana to Irv Rosenfeld every single month, and they have since 1980 uh, marijuana grown at the University of Mississippi. Um, the United States holds a patent on marijuana's uh, efficacy as a neuroprotectant and an antioxidant. So it is utterly absurd, utterly absurd, that this is considered a Schedule One controlled substance. Yeah. And for the DEA um, last month to double down on that and say, oh, no, we think it should remain Schedule One," uh, to me demonstrates what a joke that agency has become. Yeah. As a criminal defense attorney, I work with a number of, of dedicated law enforcement agents who, who work for the Drug Enforcement Administration, and they are being... Uh, severely let down by uh, an administrator who believes that marijuana should be regulated in a manner similar to heroin. It's, yeah. it's idiotic. Who has the power to, to change that classification? Is it? I, I believe that Obama could uh, uh, order it to the DEA right. to reschedule it. Certainly the legislature can do it, and the DEA itself right. can do it. Uh, the DEA, uh, I think, has demonstrated that it will not mm-hmm. unless forced uh, either by, through legislative or executive action. All right, so to wrap up, uh, what are your goals? What is your organization's goals for, let's say, the next 10 years in Pittsburgh? Uh, uh, For the next 10 years, uh, step number one, we want to work on decriminalization on a statewide basis. Uh, Step number two, and these aren't in any chronological order, but we would like to expand decriminalization regionally a little bit. Uh, Would uh, the Bellevue City Council and their police department be willing to treat marijuana as a, quote, lowest law enforcement priority? Uh, using discretion to maybe not uh, issue a summons for that misdemeanor or to issue a disorderly conduct summons. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, Pennsylvania has a law called the Noxious Weed Law, and marijuana (laughs) is defined as a noxious weed. It's a summary offense for someone who's letting their yard get overgrown with (laughs) thistle or something like that, but it's on the books, and cannabis sativa L is one of the noxious weeds. Uh, We also want to uh, work to support patients here in Pittsburgh and in southwestern uh, Pennsylvania as uh, medicinal marijuana comes online, as we start to see dispensaries uh, open up, there's going to be a real issue about whether uh, patients who are of lower income can afford their medicine. And I believe that there's going to be you know, a lot of room to work with and to advocate for patients, especially needy patients who are lower income, to get the same access. Uh, medical marijuana is not covered by health insurance, so uh, it's not likely 
that someone who might otherwise need medical marijuana is willing to spend a thousand dollars out of pocket uh, right. when you know their insurance was covering their oxycontin or whatever. So that's another issue. Okay. Um, ultimately, I think the only uh, reasonable goal is the complete repeal of marijuana prohibition. Uh, I certainly embrace a tax and regulate uh, system such as Colorado. I certainly embrace a, a system that would uh, involve some level of home grow for individuals to maybe six plants or 12 plants or something like that. But until, uh, until we get to the point where Pennsylvanians are free to engage in marijuana uh, consumption as they are in alcohol consumption or anything else, then then we still have work to do. So nothing short of complete legalization uh, is our goal, um, both here in Pennsylvania and across the United States. Do you think, do you think, are you optimistic that you're going to see that in your lifetime? Absolutely. Uh, we are seeing legalization, tax and regulate work and work well. Yeah. Uh, we are seeing that it is not leading to a spike in marijuana DUI traffic fatalities. It's not leading to a spike in uh, teen marijuana use. In some cases, marijuana reform uh, shows that teen use either remains flat or actually goes down. When you have legal marijuana, it's not all that you know sexy anymore. <laughs> right. um, I, that that was part of what drew me to it when I was fifteen yeah. years mm. old. Boy, yeah. was I a badass! Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I certainly drink less now than when I was in college. I mean, it's you know, it's it, it's just yeah, you're right. It's just something about I'm not I'm not supposed to have this, so let's yeah, yeah. make sure I get it. Well, it's funny actually. When I you know was just coming down, Lynn Cullen records her show right before this, and uh, she was just talking about an article that she read that said that parents are smoking more than their kids, more than their teenagers. And I, it's, it's very surprising to me. A recent publication uh, or uh, data shows that I think 10 million more Americans are uh, at least admitting to smoking marijuana than they did 10 years ago. I don't think that that means that we have more marijuana smokers. I think that means that we have more uh, responsible adults coming out of their cannabis closet, so to speak, and mm -hmm. admitting uh, marijuana consumption. Uh, I've talked to people at the courthouse who are like, wow, Pat, thank you for, you know, thank you for being open about this. For the first time in my life, I can admit, you know, that I do this recreationally and, I, and not feel that there's a stigma attached to it. And that, you know, I think is one of the things that helps to change this perception. Mm -hmm. When you have someone who's in their 50s who works at a bank or, you know, works in uh, investments or does whatever saying, no, I had, I do this too, yeah. then it that continues to have that snowball effect of changing uh, the stereotype, the negative stereotype associated with marijuana consumption. Now, that said, we can certainly do ourselves a lot of damage. Uh, uh, with the amount of attention being pay placed on marijuana use uh, and legalization, uh, if we had one DUI fatality that was clearly the, re the, uh, the result of someone in engaging in uh, irresponsible marijuana use, that could set our efforts back, you know, literally by years. I mean, we have DUI carnage left and right from, for alcohol, right. yeah. but one single uh, marijuana DUI fatality, and I think that that could easily derail our efforts. If I, for example, uh, got caught on a marijuana-related DUI, you know, I think that the profile that I have raised for myself yeah. could set the movement back. You know, those of us who are out front and being active with this uh, certainly have a responsibility um, to put the right face on it. If, mm. if I'm saying I'm going to get out there and speak professionally and advocate for marijuana uh, reform, then I'd better damn well lead by example and be a responsible cannabis consumer. Right. Can you give us just a kind of a, a timeline of where we are now with uh, medical marijuana going online? And I assume we still have, you know, getting, getting the votes in the legislature was just the first step in this. I mean, we still have kids who 
aren't getting their their medication, or are they? Is there well? <clears throat> It, it's interesting. Uh, let me address that first. Uh, the Pennsylvania legislator, legislature included what uh, is called a safe harbor provision in the law. Uh, I believe they acted in good faith because they wanted to try to help these, uh, these sick children immediately. And what the safe harbor provision says that if you are a child with a qualifying condition uh, and if your physician makes a recommendation, the Department of Health will issue you a letter that says that the child may possess and consume medical marijuana products and that the parent or the caregiver for that child could not be prosecuted for it. However, those medical marijuana products do not exist in Pennsylvania. Mm. They necessarily would have to go out of state and would have to obtain a product that our uh, law defines as a medical cannabis product and that does not involve actual plant material. So these families can't, for example, go to Colorado, buy a pound of Harlequin, which is high in CBD, and bring it back to Pennsylvania and be protected under our law. Mm. They could go to Colorado and purchase uh, a, an oil, a tincture, uh, a pill form, or a salve, but you know, Colorado law prevents them from taking it out of state, so they right. would necessarily be violating Colorado law, and federal law prevents interstate transfers, so they would necessarily be violating federal law. So it's a it was a good faith effort, but uh, one that is still uh, forcing parents and caregivers to look potentially to the black market or to subject themselves to potential criminal uh, prosecution. Unlikely as it is, but, you know, if you're a school teacher and you, you say, well, how do I get this medical cannabis product for my child? And I tell you to violate federal law, then you're probably not going to feel very reassured. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, the timeline for rolling out our program, uh, I would say within the next six months, uh, we will have uh, applications being submitted and evaluated and licenses being awarded for both the grow processing facilities and for the dispensaries. The Department of Health has promulgated uh, the application regulations for growers and also the uh, operating procedures for growers. Uh, nothing that is, you know, too far afield from what's in the bill, uh, a secure facility, uh, certain uh, you know, monetary capitalization requirements, uh, a business plan, uh, the support of uh, municipal government, and so on and so forth. Uh, once those licenses are awarded, however, then it's going to be up to those license holders how fast they want to uh, you know, get up to speed. Mm. And getting up to speed is going to involve planting crops, right. and likely going through a couple of flowering cycles to get those plants to the point where they are reliably producing the feminized plants with the reliable THC content or CBD content. Also, those growers have to process that plant material into a medical cannabis product, which is defined in our law as an oil, pill, tincture, or uh, topical form. Mm. And then those have to be transported to the dispensaries for retail uh, distribution. In the meantime... Uh, patients have to get registered with the program. The only way for a patient to get registered with the program is for their physician to make a medical cannabis recommendation. In order for the physician to make a medical cannabis recommendation, they have to have a four-hour training course. So doctors have to be aware of this. Patients have to ask their doctors. Right. Doctors have to be uh, uh, willing to get certified. The Department of Health has yet to uh, uh, promulgate the regulations for that four-hour certification program. So uh, it's a process. Uh, I would say I would be very, very surprised if Pennsylvania patients were uh, acquiring Pennsylvania medical cannabis products from licensed Pennsylvania uh, dispensaries before 2018. Wow. Patrick Nightingale, thank you so much for joining us today. And fuck Mike Terzai. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs>